Open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I want to first make a point of thanking everybody that helped out so much last Sunday. It was wonderful. It, I just I could go on and on about how great that was to be together last Sunday up at, up at the uh, chalet. And just the number of people that helped, especially the, uh, the egg crew. I, so I think I heard the number 1,800 eggs. And every year I marvel because I'm absolutely sure I'm going to get a phone call like on Monday or Tuesday or that next week like, hey, you want to come up and get the rest of the eggs, all the one you left? And we never do. These kids, they like sanitize the place. It's amazing. I don't think I've ever lost one or left one behind. So, but really appreciate the work that was done. It was, it was really, really good. Um, but we're going back to Mark chapter 3 where we left off before, before Easter. Um, and our text this morning is, is a bit of a long one, um, not overly long, but it's a bit larger than normal. And, but the reason I, I want to tackle this somewhat larger piece is because it is just that. It's, it is a piece. It is a, a whole. Uh, sometimes in our, in our reading and study of Scripture, we tend to you know, slice and dice it a little bit too much, and we tend to lose track of the flow of what is happening, or context, if you will, and we can get some misunderstandings. So we're going to tackle a little bit larger passage of Scripture. Uh, We're going to start at verse 13 and read through verse 30. So if you would, Mark chapter 3, Mark writes, and he, that is Jesus, went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he had himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonergis, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the rulers of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? For if Satan is divided against himself, that kingdom, or rather, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we look to it, Father, it's um, it's an encouraging word. Father, if, 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 we, if we see the magnificent accomplishments of our Savior, as we do here at work, it's very encouraging to our heart. It's a cautionary word, Father. There's some pretty stern warning, Lord. And it's a word that I believe instructs us if we hear it. So I pray, Father, for your spirit to guide all that is said, all that is heard. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, a somewhat lengthy reading, but it's all around a single thought, and that is Jesus' response 
to demonic power, unclean spirits, evil spirits, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And what that tells us about him, so important to remember, the text is always telling us about him. And it's a testimony to who he is and what he's done. A topic, of course, gets a lot of attention. The minute you start talking about demons and casting out demons and that kind of stuff, people's attention level kind of peaks. Like, where are we, where are we going with this? What's Pastor John going to say about this? But it's a really important topic. And the proof of that is the fact that Mark does give fairly lengthy space to it. And Matthew and Luke also cover these same events in certain length. So it's obviously something we should be concerned about. So what I'd like to do this morning uh, is first take an overall look at the passage, at least the first half of it, uh, and then look carefully at the parables that Jesus shares at the end of that portion, and then finally, of course, ask the question, how does that speak to us? So first of all, look at the text overall. It follows that incredible healing, those were with us a couple weeks ago, that incredible healing uh, that involved Jesus' anger. Remember that? They had the guy with the, with the hand and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees and the scribes that were there. They sat around in silence when Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they couldn't even bring themselves to say yes. And he looked at them with that anger, anger at the hardness of their hearts. So this, that's right after that episode. And he had, in response to that, gone up, or rather had gone off to a different part of the coastline. He withdrew to the sea. Now the text tells us, again looking back a couple weeks ago, that this crowd that is gathering is no longer just from, from Israel or Palestine, whatever you want to call it. The crowd that is gathered, the text tells us, is from as far away as Sidon, which is almost up to modern Beirut, right? And Idumea, which is all the way down to Gaza, and even the other side of the Jordan River. So this crowd that Jesus is gathering is extremely large. So he retreats to somewhere else on the Galilee shoreline, and the crowd follows him there. So that not working, he, he comes back to the house. We take it that's the house that he was dwelling in in Capernaum, if only temporarily. And, and while he's there, verse 10 tells us that he healed many. And the word is used there of affliction. So it's not just a specific word like illness. This word that's affliction is literally anything that would afflict one. So it could, be, it could be mental, it could be psychological, it could be physical, it could be spiritual. Jesus is responding just to the whole palette of human need. And he's healing people. And there are unclean spirits there. Now, it's, the text doesn't say he specifically cast out unclean spirits at this point. But it's, it's almost like when Jesus shows up, the unclean spirits like cast themselves out like on autopilot, right? Because they immediately fall down before him and they say, we know who you are. So there's this response by the demonic presence to Jesus, even though he's, the text doesn't say he is directly addressing them. His simple presence is enough to, if you will, you know, rock their boat a little bit. So Jesus again withdraws in verse 13 up to a mountain now. And if, you, if, you've, if you've been in Palestine, if you've been in Israel, you know that around Galilee it's completely surrounded by mountains. It would have been very easy for Jesus to withdraw up into one of those mountains. And he summons the twelve. And then we're told the names of the twelve. And we're told exactly what he summoned them for. And it's important to note in certain detail, Jesus appointed them to do three specific things, things rather. He called them to do three things. The first thing was to be with him. Right? 
That's a specific goal Jesus had when he called them. He wanted these 12 to be with him. And then the second thing was to preach. And the third thing was to have authority to cast out demons. Now, we're going to come back to these three things in a few minutes, but let's go ahead and move through the list. Uh, Mark 16 through 19, or rather chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, Mark lists the 12 apostles, right? And then in verse 20, Jesus comes down from the mountain, goes into the house. The crowd gathers again, and this time it's so bad they can't even eat. I mean, it's packed. And I can tell you, when you stop a Middle Easterner from eating, you've accomplished something. So it is, it's a crowd. It's a crowd, right? Now, some of those, verse 21, who are close to Jesus, most likely family members, that's the most likely explanation, they come and they try to intervene. Right? They literally try to take control of him. They're not just trying to talk some sense into him. It would appear they are literally going to try to physically take him and extract him from the situation because the whole thing is getting out of hand and their suggestion is that he has lost his senses. And it's, it's, it's a very clear expression that's used there. Paul uses that expression once in direct contrast in the particular case he's talking in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses this phrase in direct contrast to sound thinking. So the family members, seeing what's happening, watching Jesus' response, they come to the conclusion that, that Jesus is losing it, quite simply. He has lost any attachment to ration, to reason. He's lost his senses. That's actually an accusation, that's an assertion. It's the first of three assertions about Jesus made in this situation. The first is that he's lost his senses, all right? Now we come to the next batch of assertions, the scribes. Verse 22, the scribes from Jerusalem come up and they offer their own take on the situation. They don't think Jesus has lost his senses. They think he's demon-possessed. Verse 21, they say he is possessed, or the verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, that's, that's a name that the Jews in the first century used for Satan, but that's actually not the name for Satan. That's a name, or it's a parody on the name, of a Chaldean god, a pagan god. And in the actual proper Chaldean form of the name, it means ruler of the house. Ruler of the house. Remember that name. Beezable. Ruler of the house. And so they're saying that Jesus is possessed by Basil. But there's not unanimity in their opinion. Others suggest, others suggest in that same verse, that Jesus is operating in league with Basil. They're working together. That's the other part of the accusation. Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the demon. It's a cooperative venture, right? In response to this, Jesus speaks in parables, right? But note how verse 23 begins. It's really critical. Verse 23 says, he called them to himself. Who's the them? It's critical. And the reason it's critical, if I offend somebody, forgive me. The minute you start talking about the parables that Jesus shares... You step into an area that has a good bit of preaching attached to it, right? And in almost every example I have heard of people preaching on the whole idea of binding the strong man and all that goes along with that, it is typically presented as like a how-to. 
Like how as Christians we should pray. That if you're going to pray in a situation that involves demonic activity, the first thing you have to do is bind the strong man. That's how I've heard it taught. All right? As if Jesus is saying this to the disciples. Had he been saying that to the disciples, that would be a reasonable interpretation of this. But I would suggest that when it says Jesus called them to himself, he's not referring to the disciples. Because the last people referred to in the text weren't the disciples, but the scribes. And everything Jesus says here actually makes more sense if he's responding to the scribes. And if you look at Matthew's version or Luke's version, it reads the exact same way. What is happening is this batch of, this batch of scribes who Jesus is already a little bit upset with the religious authorities because of what just happened the last time he was in the synagogue. We remember that from two weeks back. When these scribes begin muttering among themselves, this guy is possessed by a demon. No, I don't think he's possessed by a demon. I think they're working together. They got something going. They're on the same page. At that point, Jesus, if you'll allow me to recreate it, use your imagination, Jesus stops and goes, excuse me, you guys here, come here. I'm going to talk to you. And he has three parables just for them. First parable. If a kingdom is divided against the kingdom, how does it stand? It doesn't. It falls. If a house is divided against itself, how does it stand? It falls. If Satan is divided against Satan, how does it stand? It falls. And then he adds this. And he is finished. Jesus is not telling the disciples, this, by the way, is how you pray when you encounter a demon. We'll come back to that. What he is saying to these religious experts, these scribes, is you guys are seriously wrong. If you think this has anything to do with me coming under the influence of a demonic power, or you thinking I'm operating in league with a demonic power, because none of that makes any sense, if that were to happen, you wouldn't be seeing demons being cast out. You'd see a whole other scenario. But no, the fact that Jesus is exerting power and influence over demonic presence shows that, the, that Satan himself is finished. The strong man is already bound. That's the point of the parable. To make it perfectly clear, the strong man, and again, the term strong man, the ruler of the house, that's a direct reference back to the name of Beelzebul. He's referring exactly to the demonic entities they're talking about. That demonic power is already bound. Now, if I was preaching about Satan this morning, I'm not, I'm preaching about Jesus. But if I was preaching about Satan this morning, I would title this message, Bound But Not Gagged. He can still talk. And he can still lie. And lie he does. But Jesus has broken his power. It started in the incarnation. It reached an apex in the temptations in the wilderness when Satan took his best shot and Jesus said, leave me, go. And it was completed on Calvary and in the empty tomb. But the power of the evil one has been bound. It's a done deed. 
That is what Jesus says of himself. I have broken the power of the evil one. You don't need to worry about it anymore. Your accusations make no sense. People getting healed, people getting delivered, people getting set free. That is because the Lord of the house, the strong man, has already been bound. The power of the evil one is already broken. And then verses 28 and 29, Jesus continues with an extremely strong warning. It's one people have a lot of questions about. He talks about the unforgivable sin. All the sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. A lot of people will, have come to me over the years saying, Pastor, I really messed up. I think I, I think I committed the unforgivable sin. I'm really, really worried about it. Well, my father-in-law used to say, if you're really, really worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, that's a really good sign you haven't. That's not generally how it works. What Jesus is talking about here is a deliberate act, listen to me carefully please, is a deliberate and conscious act on the part of these religious authorities who not only should know better but did know better, a deliberate act of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the activity of Satan. They are attributing acts of the power of the Holy Spirit to the person of the evil one. And that's why Jesus called him over. He said, I got a really stern warning for you guys. You are skating on precariously thin ice because you are close to coming to a place where there is no forgiveness. But that is not the kind of thing people do accidentally or casually. Those, may, those are other kinds of sins. This is a deliberate, conscious effort to convolute the work of God on the work of the evil one. Just to put this into practical, and I'm not trying to you know, pick on people, or, or, but there are various manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we see in the church today, and there's a wide variety of opinions about which are appropriate and which aren't, which should be in public worship, which should be... There's a lot of opinion, and that discussion is a very, very healthy discussion. It really is. That's a healthy discussion for any church to have, right? But when I hear somebody say something like, well, I don't go for that speaking in tongues. I think that's of the devil. Makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because that puts one in a very precarious place. What really is called for in the body of Christ in this whole discussion about the manifestation of the Spirit and the gifts and what they look like is a large measure of humility in the assertions that we make because we are talking about something, frankly, much of which is well above our pay grade. All we can do is respond to the instruction of Scripture as we see best and pray for God's guidance and direction, always endeavoring to manifest the character of Christ. Because if something isn't manifesting the character of Christ, that's a pretty easy call. But anything that draws people to the person of Christ, I have to be at least initially supportive of. We need to be careful when we're talking about things. And that's the warning, right? But that isn't, and, and that warning is not just here. I mean, there's some marvelous passages in 2 Peter and Jude that remind us even the angels themselves are careful with the way they talk about spiritual things involving the evil one. Even Michael the archangel, the text says, would not bring 
an accusation against the evil one that said, the Lord take care of you. Okay? So we need to be cautious when we're talking about these things, and we need to be respectful of the Spirit of God as he works in the lives of those around us. So, so what can we say about ourselves, what we should be doing? Well, first of all, we can have an incredible degree of confidence as we navigate this incredibly fallen world. Because yes, Satan is bound, but the world is still a fallen place. There are still so many things horribly wrong. There's so much evil, but the evil one is defeated. It's just taking time to work that out. And in time, it will work out. It is certainly not that Satan has no influence. His final elimination is yet to come, right? Jesus told Peter, he said, Satan is desired, some translations say demanded, it's a really bad translation, Satan is desired to sift you like wheat, and for some reason God gave him permission to do it. That's one of those decisions that's above our pay grade. But then Jesus went on to say, I have prayed for you, and after you have returned, strengthen your brethren. See, that's our confidence, that even though evil may find and will find opportunity to manifest itself in this dark world, we know that we are safe in his hands. And evil does not, never has to have the upper hand. It never has to have the final say unless we choose to believe the lie. Like I said, he's bound but not gagged. He can still lie, and lie he does, right? Our confidence is based wholly on the fact that Jesus is Lord. And the impact of that is only limited by our willingness to embrace it. The only limit on the power and authority of Jesus in my life is my willingness to embrace his power and his authority. We have a calling. We have an appointment as the people of God. We too, just like the 12 at the first... Now, we kind of think that, man, those guys, they had it made. They were like Jesus. I mean, they were right there. He had them standing physically next to him, right? No wonder he could give them the authority to cast out demons. You know, what we have is better. What we have is better. Authority, the word for authority is exousia. It means outside of one. Authority is always given, right? Favorite illustration, you're driving down the road, colorful lights behind you, you pull over your car, and the guy asks your license and registration. You give them to him. Why? Because they've been given authority, first of all, to stop you. Second of all, to insist that you show them your paperwork, and then thirdly, to give you a ticket if you're going to. All that came not from them. That's not inherent in that person. It doesn't matter who's wearing that uniform, right? or what you think of them. It's the uniform that counts. It's the badge, the hat, the gun, all that stuff. All that came from somebody else. It came from the state, or the borough, or the state. It came from somebody else. That's authority. It's, it's the ability to cause other people to respond to you in a particular way that's given by somebody else, right? That's what the disciples had. They had the authority to cast out demons. But what does Acts chapter 2 say about us? Or rather, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power is totally different. Power is totally internal. Power is a byproduct of what is inside of one. All right? I never forget many years ago, I heard a great story. Um, Senator Ted Kennedy, who was, of course, a very, very liberal Democrat, 
very powerful, very influential person in the United States Senate. His daughter married a Republican, if you remember, Arnold Schwarzenegger, then governor of California. And, and Ted Kennedy was once asked how he was able to get along with a Republican. And I'll never forget Senator Kennedy's response. He says, well, when you pause to think that the person you're talking to has the ability to take you by your ankles, hold you upside down, and shake you until you agree with him, it's really easy to get along. <laughs> Ted Kennedy had authority. Schwarzenegger has power, right? He understood that. That's the difference. We have power inherent within us. Why? Because of the dwelling of the Spirit of God in the church. Go back to those three things that Jesus said about those three appointments he had for his disciples. He said to do three things. The first one was be with him. Everything that followed in their lives was a direct product of being with him. We are with him. No, we don't have Jesus standing physically next to us. The downside to that is he might walk over there and stand to somebody else next and I don't have him next to me anymore. What do we have? First of all, we have him with us in his word. He was called the word of God because the word of God is an expression of his character. And every moment we spend in his word is a moment we spend with him. We have him in worship. Worship is so powerful. Because when we as a collected body of believers are in worship, we are with him. And his character is being manifested in us. That is why we invest the time as a fellowship in worship that we do. It is time with Jesus. There's that incredible story in Ezekiel. They're going to learn about it in a life group. Most of you know it. Israel was in a really sad place. Spiritually, they had gone about as far as they could go. That Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Elijah. And Elijah the prophet said, we're going to have a contest. And he called all the prophets of Baal. He says, I want you to do your best to make sacrifice. And they all gathered around and they made their sacrifice and they literally hooped and hollered for hours. It got, and it was nothing, silence, nothing happened. And they were so desperate. The prophets of Baal were so desperate, they cut themselves so their blood ran on the ground and nothing happened. And hours went by. I half in my mind's eye think that at some point the prophet must have asked for a chair. Well, somebody bring me a chair. I'm getting really tired here. And he's flipping through the newspaper while they're doing all their stuff, hooping and hollering and trying to get some response out of their God. Right? God's not saying anything. Then after they're all done, the prophet Elijah said, let's rebuild the altar. And he rebuilt the altar, and he arranged the wood on the top of the altar, and he arranged the sacrifice on top of the altar, And then he said, let's do one more thing. Pour some water on the sacrifice. And they came and they brought and they poured water on the sacrifice. And the prophet said, when I say pour water, I mean pour water. Do it again. And they poured water on it again. And then he said, pour water on it again. Until finally there was a trough that was dug around the base of the sacrifice to catch all the blood that ran off the sacrifice. He said, fill it till that trough is full. And then he prayed. And what happened? Fire fell and consumed the offering, the wood, and with apology to Newton, the stones too, gone. 
everything. The water itself was licked up, right? I left one detail out of that story. The very first thing the prophet did, he called the people to himself. We read that story, and if you're not careful, you think he did the whole thing himself. Uh Uh-uh. No. Elijah brought the people near, and then everything else happened. That was an act. Yeah, Elijah was leading it, but that was an act of corporate worship, and the power of God was made manifest. When we worship God, we encounter his power. We are with Jesus. And when we've been with Jesus... We are in a place to preach. Oh, pastor, no. Okay, not everybody is called to stand up in front and preach, right? Fine. All that word means is make known the good news about Jesus. That's all that word means. And there's not a one of us who's not called to do that. There is not one of us who's not called to manifest the character and the person to Jesus in that depraved, sick world out there. And every one of us can do it if you've spent time with Jesus. Sometimes I think it's even more effective in the informality of a work setting or a family setting or a a gathering of friends. That can be the most powerful and effective manifestation of the gospel, which is just the character of Jesus. And then the whole issue of casting out demons, you're going, oh, pastor, I don't want to be appointed to do that. Neither do I. It's ugly. And I'm not suggesting that anybody should looking for the circumstance. Jesus wasn't looking for it in this chapter. He's healing people, and then the demons start acting up. But when they did, he responded. Any one of us can encounter that at any moment, provided we are manifesting the character of Jesus. Now, if you're not manifesting the character of Jesus, you can walk right through and nothing happens. But you begin to demonstrate the character of Jesus in this broken and ungodly world, and you're likely to see some things happen. But here's the good news. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that is true of every single believer. Limited only by whether or not we walk with him. Our ability to respond is only limited by the intimacy of our walk with him. And that is why we read his word. That is why we study his word, meditate on his word. That is why we gather in worship that is why we're together in life groups in the week. In the week, That strengthens us and allows his character to be manifested through us. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we have things on our mind every day, and sometimes they're the kind of things that weigh a ton. And it seems as if the worry itself would overwhelm us. But, Father, we know that we live in fellowship with Jesus. Father, the very fact that we live in fellowship with Jesus, that we walk indwelt by the Spirit of God. So it's, it's part of, of salvation, Father, that your Spirit lives within us, Lord. That is going to bring us into conflict, Father. Put us in difficult situations, Lord, because we live in a fallen world. And the Satan one, no bounds, still spreads his lies, Lord. And people believe him, and they listen to him, and they live that way, Lord. And that brings us into conflict. But, Father, we have a confidence. We have a confidence in a Savior who has bound the evil one, who broke his power. His authority was stripped away on Calvary. His power was broken at the empty grave. Father, thank you that we can have that confidence. 
Father, we thank you that we know that as we spend time with you, whether in your word or in prayer, in fellowship with other believers, Father, the character of Christ is strengthened in us, and that is how we can respond, Father, when we encounter the world. Father, I'm sure as the disciples left that moment when you appointed them, they did some real soul-searching and some real head-scratching. Father, we should not be surprised if we're often left with that same experience. It isn't the understanding of your presence that matters, Father. It's the simple reality of it. And we know you are with us, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship.